Well, I'm going to let you sit for the sermon text this morning. So have a seat and turn in your Bibles to the book of John, John chapter 8, starting with verse 31. If you don't have your Bibles, we've printed it for you, um, and you can find that on page 8. If you are not a Christian and don't have a Bible, we would love for you to grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you um, and take it home with you. John chapter 8, starting with verse 31, reading through verse 47. This is God's word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not have you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if. God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let me pray for us and ask God's blessing on his word preached. Lord, as we come to your word, it is with this desire, we desire to hear from Jesus, the one who reigns with all power and authority, and when he speaks, he speaks with all power and authority. And so speak to us by your word, through your Holy Spirit, so that we would be changed. We would be changed to become more like you in our heart's desires, in our mind's thoughts, in the will and work of our hands. Oh God, glorify yourself. Glorify yourself by making Jesus become beautiful and believable to us. For we pray in his name. Amen. You know, the, uh, it has been said that ideas have legs, that really the history of the world is just the outplaying of ideas. 
has also been said along these lines, it has been suggested that the Cold War ended because of two forces. The arms race, which we typically give attention to and give credit to, but also the farms race. In 1957, in the midst of the Cold War, the United States started to introduce the USSR to the supermarket. They built a 10,000 square foot exhibit of an American supermarket in Yugoslavia, and a million people showed up to visit it, over a million, and the supermarket began to take off in the USSR. A year later, in Moscow, the American government also built a split-level ranch-style American house, and its kitchen was stocked with food and the latest labor-saving devices. And it has been suggested that this was as much part of the undoing of the USSR and communism as was the arms race. It was a move of propaganda on our government's part. It took a few years, but the idea of capitalism began to dismantle the way people lived their lives. And it worked this way. that offered a better idea, and it's outworking. The people saw that capitalism could provide a cheap way, an easy way to make food to a terribly hungry people who were tired. Ideas have legs. What we believe plays out in our lives. It changes the way we live, but ideas often sneak their way under the radar into our lives. Not one grand idea at a time, but by subtle shifts that often go unnoticed. One marketing genius said this, The art of propaganda or selling consists precisely in being able to awaken the imagination of the public through an appeal to their feelings and finding the appropriate psychological form that will arrest the attention and appeal to the hearts of the national masses. It was that marketing genius who went from an ambitious yet awkward German to a despot fool who ruled an entire country. He understood Hitler did, that if you can gain traction with ideas, subtly creeping their way in, then you can control the masses. You see, in both cases, and in all cases where we're being marketed to, what's being sold is a vision for freedom through power, because they're appealing to one of our most basic needs, or most basic desires, to be free and to gain power. Every marketing campaign at some level appeals to these two. Look, you can, be, you can find the ideal world through convenience and then you'll be free to live the life that you want to live, whatever that is. But the deeper tragedy isn't that ideas have legs, but that we can be so blind to the attempts to freedom that we are buying, that we find ourselves slaves to a new master. And then not knowing how to get out. In the search for economic freedom, we get stuck in jobs that require more of us than we have to give. In search of sexual freedom, we get stuck in endless patterns of diminishing returns. And the heart of the matter as Jesus is pointing out, is that we need to be freed from ourselves 
from the evil one. And so into this search for freedom that leads to a greater slavery, which is the path that we typically take, Jesus offers us this promise from verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then later, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And you notice the contrast here, right? Every offer for freedom is, if you buy this thing, if you work hard enough, if you put in enough effort, then you'll be free, and it leads to enslavement. Jesus says, I'll do the work, and by my grace, I'll set you free, and then you'll be free Indeed, so the backdrop of chapter 8 is an ongoing conflict that started all the way back in chapter 5 and has been building in chapter 7 as Jesus is at the Temple Mount for the festivals. And the conflict that's growing is between him and the religious leaders. They've sent officers to arrest Jesus in the temple. And then by the end of chapter 8, the very last verse, verse 59, they're picking up stones to throw at Jesus. But he hides himself and walks out of the temple unhurried. And Jesus' popularity is growing as well. And this narrative amidst this conflict, his popularity is growing. And so we've not printed page uh, verse 30, but if you pick up in verse 30 in your Bibles, is he saying these things about himself, about who he is and where he's come from? He's come from the Father, and he speaks with the Father's authorities. He's saying these things. Many believed in him. And then we pick up our passage in verse 31. The Jews who had believed in them, Jesus begins to address Jesus is concerned, this is what he's going to begin to do, is say to them, some of you, though you believe in me, don't really believe in me. Because Jesus is concerned, not with gathering a crowd, but with genuine faith. And John helps us throughout his gospel to understand what genuine faith in Jesus is. One of the things that we'll see here is it is a, is a supernatural response to God's word. But John often uses not faith as, um, as a noun, like we, we typically use it as a noun, but John uses it as a verb. In fact, he never uses it as a noun. It's always used as a verb and always and almost always with the word into to it, believing in or into Jesus, believing into the care. It's not so much agreement, but entrusting it's one thing to go to the doctor and hear him give you his assessment of what's going on and agree to it and then walk out of the room. It is another thing to entrust yourself to the care of that doctor. And Jesus is more concerned with us entrusting ourselves than simply nodding in agreement with him. He wants to entrust us to entrust him to him for healing and for remaking. He wants to treat us. So we have to entrust himself to his care. And so Jesus confronts this crowd who's gathered in front of him. And this is what he often does because he's not concerned with simply gathering a crowd. He's not up for fame and fortune. He is concerned with the heart of the people, the deep parts of us that govern who we are and what we think. And so he says to him in verse 31, If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples. Which really then begs a question. What does it mean to abide in the word of Jesus? Which then really begs another question. 
What does true freedom look like? And what do we need to be freed from? And so Jesus ignites a conflict to expose the deeper issues. And as he ignites this conflict, he says to them, listen, you don't believe me. Because there's a greater conflict going on that finds its roots all the way back the beginning of our Bibles in the passage that Adam read today. That conflict is playing itself out. He's sort of pulling the curtain back. It's like in your marriage when you, uh, when you get in this huge fight over a just small thing and, and you pull back and you're like, what, why are we fighting over this? And you realize that it's really years of conflict that have built over a period of time. It's just playing itself out in that one minor conflict. And the deeper backdrop goes all the way back to our Old Testament reading. Where God, Adam had put Adam, or God had put Adam in the garden. He was the first man. More than the first man, he was the leader of God's people. He was, he was the first king of God's kingdom and the representative of all mankind. And he had been put on a mission to expand the kingdom of God. But into God's kingdom slithered a snake. And a battle took place between God's king and the evil one. But not a battle with swords and shields, a battle with words and ideas. A real battle A battle between God's revelation and the self-revelation of the evil one. And so the slithering snake deceived Adam and his wife. And instead of listening to God's word, Adam listened to the lies of the evil one. But God would not let this be. And so he spoke again. And into the curse of sin entered into the world. But God would not let this be. And so he spoke again. And he made another promise. A promise that these two kingdoms would be in conflict throughout the world. In all of history. But the self-revelation of God would win against the self-revelation of the evil one. He'll strike his heel. He'll stomp on your head. You'll get a minor victory, but he will win the day. The seed of the woman will win. And this conflict plays itself out so that by the end of the chapter 8, Jesus proclaims, look, I've just as long as I can be clear, I am the great I am. I am Yahweh who was at Mount Sinai, who's been with my people all along, who has had a pattern of speaking and ruling and setting my people free. I am and they pick up stones to stone him. Now, if you're thinking through this text, you could be thinking at this point, aren't these the religious leaders of Israel? Aren't these the good guys? Aren't these, how is this the conflict between these two kingdoms? And so Jesus just opens it up in verse 34. My truth will set you free. And this is their response. But we're Abraham's children. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, This is so ironic that I think John intends for us to laugh at this point. Because Israel has literally been enslaved to every major world power. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece. Now they're enslaved to the Romans under their occupancy. But Jesus is concerned about the deeper enslaving force that has blinded them. The one that collaborates with the kingdom of darkness. So verse 34 
Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Before sin is something we do, it is a power, it is a force like gravity that enslaves us. It is like an occupying power that has taken up residence in every man, woman, and child's heart. It has enslaved our whole being to its corruption, and none of us can break out. We are chained to it. And the irony of sin is that it always promises freedom. But watch somebody who's given themselves fully over to their desires. They can't get away from it. It's like an addict who can't escape. It only spirals down. Give yourself fully over to your desires and it will entrap you. But lest we think we're fighting a one front war for freedom... Jesus goes on, you think you're fighting a one front war, you're going to get outflanked in the battle for freedom. We need to remember that sin and Satan are fighting together as co-belligerents against God's rule and his reign. It's sobering that Jesus is having this conflict with the religious leaders, doesn't it? Isn't it? I mean, that should awaken some of us within the church. God has always had wheat and tares. There have always been those who think that they're on God's side but have not fought against the evil one but instead been deceived by him. It's not a category. This is not what he's drawing lines. Jesus doesn't draw the lines. Here are the good people and the bad people. Here are the enslaved people and the freed people and I've set them free. And so he's reaching into the religious world and saying some of you are of your father the devil. Because in this conflict, there are two sides. And the Jews in Jerusalem are quite proud of their heritage. We're children of Abraham. But they're trying to kill the Son of God. And eventually they hang him on the cross, executing him as a rebel. Just in God's time, they, they do. The kingdom of darkness strikes the, the heel of the seed of the woman. But God in his victory raises him from the dead and crushes the evil one. So verse 42, Jesus confronts them. Look, if you rely on your religious heritage, if you rely on your goodness, if you rely on your tensions, this reveals that you are fathered by another. Abraham's our only father, they say. We're not illegitimate children. Verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he says he's a liar. And if you're going to know your enemies in the art of war, one of the keys to winning the fight is to know your enemies. He's a murderer from the beginning. He literally, Satan literally brought death into the world through the sin of Adam. God had made a covenant with Adam. And with covenants comes blessings and curses. And the curse of the covenant was that if you break, if you break my commands, death will come in. You will surely die. And immediately after sin enters the world through the sin of the one man, as Satan tempts him to break God's commands and death enters the world, he 
immediately then creates conflict between the first brothers and Cain murders Abel immediately out of the gate. John says this in 1 John 3, certainly referring back those hints of John 8 in this passage. He says this, We shouldn't be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. When God gives Satan permission to test Job immediately out of the gates, he kills off his family. And then, second test, he afflicts his body with boils. Because he's a murderer from the beginning. He knows, he knows he can't overthrow God. He can't destroy the eternal, unchangeable, sovereign, reigning God. So he does the next best thing. I will destroy his image. Even during Jesus' ministry, Jesus often delivering people from demon possession who physically harm themselves, even at times trying to throw themselves into fires. But how does he work to destroy the image of God? How does he murder, not primarily with rocks and swords, his weapons are more subtle and insidious. He murders with the ideas, the lies that we believe because he is a liar. In fact, he's the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, verse 44. And this is the way he works. He's just so subtle. He's a twister. Just subtly twisting constantly. He's the master of half-truths that masquerade as whole truths. Back in Genesis 3, the first question he asks is, Did God really say? Can you really trust his word? And then he subtly, just subtly twists what God actually said. Where God had graciously, generously given Adam and Eve full reign of his kingdom. And said, eat anything that you see except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Stay away from that one. Eat everything else. Look at how much I've given you. Satan subtly twists it. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree? You surely won't die. God's word can't be trusted. He's just out to keep you from good things. He's the killjoy who is selfish and and just wants to take freedom from you. And Eve, as she subtly believes the half-truths that are twisted her as a result desires get twisted and now she sees the prohibited tree and we're told as a delight to the eyes and she desired it and took and ate his most insidious lie is this God can't be trusted because he's just out to rob me of freedom and joy And you see the gospel breaks into this and says God is so committed to his your freedom and joy that he gave his only son to rescue you from the imprisonment that you've brought under yourself by being enslaved to sin and by the evil one who is so twisting the truth that you can't even see what he's doing and to give you joy 
by living out of his ways. And we need to know that this is just what's going on all the time around us. Satan hates God and his word. And you, you may not be a Christian yet. You may just be exploring Christianity. You may even just hate Christianity. There's maybe some in this room that are like that. Just hate it. Think it's a... But, but we need to be aware, I just would caution you to be aware that there's always more going on that we're just unaware of. Because listen to what Paul says in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As he tells us, the inability to believe is partially the result of the blinding lies of Satan. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tampering with God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Here is the distinction. Satan is always selling. God is always open, honest, and clear. In their case, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so when Jesus says the truth will set you free, he means the truth of the gospel as revealed in the person of Jesus. Jesus breaks in with his word. With the power of the kingdom of God, the Son of God plunders the kingdom of darkness. As Paul says, this is what happens when you become a Christian. Your eyes are open so you can see what is clear and true as God has revealed it. And what's happening at that moment, verse 35 the slave doesn't remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son set you free, you will be free indeed. That's the mark of those inside the house that belongs to God. The mark is you have been freed by the Son and are no longer slaves and have a new disposition to God's word. Verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. Just, it's, it is so humbling to think. Jesus is saying here, there's no such thing as objectivity. No one is purely objective. There are hidden forces at play that eliminate that possibility. They're the forces, the subtle lies of the evil one or the or the force, the unstoppable force of Jesus through his Holy Spirit who makes us hear the words of God. Verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. Anyone of us, anybody who has ever... ...once dull and dead, it suddenly becomes alive... But better yet, better said, you become alive to it. You hear the word of God 
as a son who hears his father's voice and is both with intimacy and power that it breaks into our lives. This is our father speaking. And I once was blind, but now I see. He's made me alive. Because true freedom is not the freedom to do whatever you want. That kind of freedom only leads to greater imprisonment. True freedom is to be free to be free to do what God says is right and good and true. Now, some of you have learned the hard way that you don't want to put diesel in your gasoline engine because the manufacturer has made it to run on one thing, and you would not say, but I have the freedom to put diesel into my... Well, you, you certainly do have freedom to put gas, diesel in your gas tank. But that freedom ain't going to run very well for very long. True freedom is to do what God says is good and right and true. Because our wants are corrupted. Our desires are not as they should be. And we need the self-revelation of God to find the path of freedom from the lies of the evil one whose goal it is to murder and destroy. Verse 31. If you abide... In my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know, abide is, the, is from the word to remain. Abide is not a word that we use a lot. So abide is from the word to remain. Your home is where you abide. You could say, I abide in my abode. I live there. It's my home. If you make my word your home, then you'll be free when you abide in my word. Make the word of God your home, then God abides with you. This is what it means to be a son in God's household. Not only that that you hear God's word and respond to it, but God actually takes up his abode with you. Whoever, 2 John 9, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. That's real freedom. And so let me give us four things in closing, four things to do to abide in God's Word so that we will be set free. Four. One, commit to see all of life through God's Word. It is the foundation of truth and knowing that there are half-truths circulating all around us that are vying to become whole truths on which we build our lives. Every half-truth, every half-truth has to be evaluated in light of God's Word. And the great danger of gospel freedom isn't abandoning the gospel, it's adding to it. We all are tempted to do this. Very few may be tempted to completely abandon the gospel and very few make a decision to completely abandon the gospel without first adding to it. I have a little bit of Jesus, a little bit from the bookshelves at Walmart, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit from my TV, what they're offering me. And so I had a little bit of teaching here because this Jesus thing isn't moving as fast as I thought it would. Know that the liar loves to get to you to abandon the sufficiency and the authority of God's word. Did God really say? Well, God's word 
says in his word is enough. All of life evaluated. Commit to that. Second, let it speak to all of life. If you were to keep a little bit of your life sectored off, that little bit will be enslaved to corruption. Open up all of your life, all of your heart, all of your life to the sufficiency and authority of God's word. Because the nature of deception is that you don't know that you are being deceived. And so God has to speak into all areas of your life. Just not this little area called spiritual life. And then there's this other area of work or play or money or sex or time management. All of life under God's word. That's what it means to abide. Third, come to God's word confessing so that it stands over you. With authority. A subtle prayer that starts like this Lord, I am weak against sin and Satan, and I often don't know where I am deceived. What you say is true and good, so speak to me from your word that I may be free. Just a subtle change. Instead of me standing over it to evaluate it, let it stand over me. But in order to get there, I've got to confess God, I, I need you to break in. Forth, so this one said negatively, you are not abiding in God's word if you are not obeying God's word. It's got to work itself out. John, again, 1 John 2 this time. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him Truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Growing in obedience. To abide in God's word saying, it's not only what it says is true, but if it's true, I'm going to live by it. Let me close with this quote from Sam Albury. Sam is uh, same-sex attracted. Struggles with homosexual desire. He's also an Anglican minister. He's banked his life on God's word. Sam says this. But over the last couple of years, I have felt increasingly concerned that when it comes to our gay friends and family members, many of us Bible-believing Christians are losing confidence in the gospel. We're not always convinced it really is good news for gay people. We're not always sure we can really expect them to live by what the Bible says. It's simply not possible to argue for gay relationships from the Bible. God's word is clear. In fact, clear. The Bible consistently prohibits any sexual activity outside of marriage. And so as someone who experiences homosexual feelings, this is not always an easy word to hear. There have been times of acute temptation and longing. Times when I have been, quote, in love. But I've learned that what we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives back. For me, these include a wonderful depth of friendship God has given me with many brothers and sisters, the opportunity of singleness, the privilege of wide-ranging ministry, the community of a wonderful church family. But greater than any of these is the opportunity to learn the all-sufficiency of Christ. My main point is this. The moment you think following Jesus will be a poor deal for someone, you call Jesus a liar. Discipleship's not always easy. Leaving anything cherished behind is profoundly hard. 
But Jesus says, it's always worth it. I will wait for you. I will wait for you. On your word, I will rely. I will wait for you. Surely wait for you. Till my soul is satisfied. Let's pray. Lord, your word is true. And Satan is a liar and a murderer who's seeking to destroy us, but you are the God of life who gave your Son for our sins so that we could find life in him. And if you set us free, Jesus, if the Son sets us free, we will be free indeed. Give us the freedom to wait for you and rely on your word. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.